Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. So I wanted to start this week's show with just a bit of history about Badass Women's Hour. When the show was started by me... Emma Sexton and Natalie Campbell. We did so because we wanted to bring a range of diverse voices, voices that weren't often heard on our airwaves, to the radio and podcasts. Since we've started, a lot has changed, and yet, as evidenced by the Black Lives Matter protests around the world this week, it hasn't changed far enough or fast enough. So, until it does, I'm going to keep bringing you a group of brilliant, diverse, badass women talking about their life experiences. And I'm committed to doing that even when the rest of the media moves on to something else. That is what Badass Women's Hour was created for and what I intend to keep doing. On this week's episode, I talk to lawyer Paula Rhode-Adrian about the Black Lives Matter protests and how we keep talking to our children about racism. I hold MP Laura Farris and the Conservative Party at large to account over their forthcoming domestic abuse bill, asking does it go far enough and as a party, are they really committed to it? And I meet one woman fighting to change the medical profession's understanding of Alzheimer's and gender. Plus, one of the UK's most senior nurses and all-round badass, Elizabeth Anionwu, shares her incredible life story. First up, lawyer Paula Roan Adrian talks to us about the Black Lives Matter protests and racism in the UK today. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. This debate about should we be protesting during COVID-19, we are supposed to be, we're supposed to be staying at home, right? That's the order. We're not supposed to be within more than two metres of people. We're not supposed to be uh, engaging in gatherings of more than six people. And so protests and marches go against that. And I have to say, I understand that point of view. However... However, there are times when we have to keep moving anyway. It's an interesting problem, which is that when we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, when we are talking about the protests happening in the US and the UK, what we're really talking about is actually understanding why it is that as a society, we do not prioritize black lives. Why do we treat them differently? Why do we think that actually the black community is uh, dying more from coronavirus? Why are they impacted by it more economically? Why are their families impacted by it? Why are they in the NHS in roles where they are more likely to die from it? 
all of these questions are the ones that the protest today want to raise and have us actually answer. And I think it's really important that we do that. Uh, but here to talk to us about it now, we have Paula Roan Adrian, Family Law Barrister at Land Building Chambers. Hi, Paula. Good evening, Harriet. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. Um, so I want to start with the fact that we, this weekend, we are seeing protests and marches in the UK, particularly here in London. We saw the pictures um, from Hyde Park and Trafalgar Square. Why do you think it is that what is happening in the US has stirred up this uh, level of passion and determination here in the UK as well? I, I, I think just in general, um, human beings are actually quite nice. I think actually there are more good human beings in the world than are bad. I think the impression that we get because we watch the news every day um, and we read our newspapers and we're always online is that there's so many bad things happening in the world. But actually I think when human beings are confronted with an atrocity, that they will stand up and they will be prepared to say enough is enough and that is what we're seeing right around the world. For some of our listeners, they might be looking at this and saying, well, hang on, this is, a, this is a US problem. It's not a UK problem. What are we supposed to do about it? It's something that happens over there. It doesn't happen over here. Uh, nobody's dying over here, are they? I personally don't feel that, but um, for anyone who is feeling that, what would you say to them? Well, I would try to explain to your listeners who aren't aware that, unfortunately, that is what's happening here. Uh, we know from the statistics that um, a black male is twice as likely to die in police custody than his British white counterpart. We know that black um, people only make up 3% of our population, uh, and yet we represent 13% of the prison population. Um, you know, why is that? Why is that the case? Um, and we know that even, for example, just back in 2017, I, I, I'd like to reference the, the sad death of Darren Cumberbatch. Mm -hmm. He was yeah. um, a black man who was beaten um, and I'm putting in quotation marks, with excessive force by the police. Um, we're still waiting for the inquiry into his death. So it does happen, and your listeners need to understand that sadly it happens all the time. And some of your older listeners may uh, have a recollection of the riots that have happened in Brixton on more than one occasion due to um, a young black male dying in police custody. And um, even in Scotland, they have had unfortunate instances. So this is not something, um, uh, sadly, that is unusual to Britain or, or specific to America. But, but we know that we also recognise the fact that when you look at racism as a whole, this is a pandemic in the same way that we see a virus spreading across the world. It's the same way that we see that virus of racism spreading around the world. And it has done for centuries, Harriet. Mm. One of the things that struck me about the protests going on this afternoon is the reporting of them and you know, earlier this evening the reports that uh, i'm going to use sort of you know classic news language here reports that protesters and police had clashed and that officers had been knocked from their horses um police seek to calm the protests 
it feels very much like when we report about these things, we report about them in a way that I think is subtly racist, that we talk about, you know, police being needed to calm the protests. Well, actually, when you look at the pictures, the protests look pretty calm. Nobody's, you know, nobody's are fighting. There's no aggression. Um, when I have been at these protests, I have to say it's felt more like a walk in the park. It's a very gentle affair. You know, why do you think that we continually try to rile up our language when it comes to race? I think because the subject of racism is something that riles people up, isn't it? And so when you talk about such an emotive topic, it obviously raises various different emotions within people. And so um, a lot of people actually, when you talk about racism, actually don't talk about racism. They actually shy away from discussing it and debating it because uh, they fear, I suspect, that if they do so, they might insult the other person that they're discussing the topic with, or feel that they might even be called a racist themselves. And that's a massive fear for a lot of people. And so when you look at the protesters and you look at how they're be being depicted in the press, it's all about being angry and aggressive. And I have to say, the majority of the protesters um, are white, but it's very much um, something, it's a noun that's used, an expressive word to use when you describe a black person, they're very aggressive, very angry. Um, you know, and that's what um, people who are going to read the newspapers are going to see. But I'm so glad that you said it because I was also caught up in the protest today. Um, and what I saw was people walking, marching peacefully, everyone very much wearing their masks, everyone very much doing their best to be aware of their surroundings and being respectful. But at the same time, I, I also want to acknowledge the fact that the police are going to be up against a, a small group of people who are not there for the cause, who are not there to yeah. represent the peaceful voice, and who are seeing it as an opportunity to fling a brick or throw a stick, you know, um, mm. and, and to get away with it. Do you think that given we are supposed to be socially distancing, that uh, you know we are breaking the law now if we go to somebody else's house, that people are, as of next week are not supposed to be on public transport without face masks, and that overall we are supposed to, as much as possible, be staying at home, is this the wrong time for these protests? Sadly, there is never going to be a right time for these protests. Um, and let me just cut to the chase. Do I support mm. the protesters? Absolutely, I do. Absolutely, mm. I do. And I commend them for their bravery because please don't let it be lost on you or your listeners that as a member of uh, the um, black community, I am once more twice as likely to die from the coronavirus than I am my white counterpart. But I still feel that it's important where possible to not allow the death of George Floyd or any other person, yes, any other life to be lost 
at the hands of a law enforcement officer. And Harriet, law is one of the principal pillars of society. And if we have lost or a part of that pillar is eroded, then where are we as a community? Where are we as a society if we do not stand up and confront the fact that it needs to be fixed? And this is what the protesters are doing. They are saying enough is enough. You know, we take it more than just Black Lives Matter. It's about all lives matter. matter. And the fact that it's so important to ensure that this um, absolutely crucial pillar of society is upheld. And I hear you, and I, you know, I think when you say there that all lives matter, I think there'll be people listening who go, yes, absolutely, that's what we're talking about. But I also really want to champion the fact that, yes, all lives matter. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. But also, sometimes some lives have to have more focus and attention on their mattering than others. And that right now, it's one particular group of people who, as you say, are more likely to be victims of police brutality, are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system, are more likely to be stopped and searched, are more likely to die of COVID-19. And when that's the case, you have to prioritise that particular group. I, I think that's something that perhaps we don't talk about enough but we actually we sort of say black lives matter and then there's a sort of you know it, it but we know that all lives matter as well but actually i really feel that i feel really strongly that we can be a bit tough on this and we can say do you know what yes all lives matter but sometimes sometimes some people's communities right there in that moment we have to make them matter more and i think that is the case for the black community at the moment would you agree I absolutely would, I would agree. And can I just say to you that I um, never in my lifetime did, did I think that I was going to see this level of recognition. Um, and I've been asked um, a number of times over the last week to kind of give examples of the microaggressive racism that I have tolerated to the very overt racism that I've tolerated. Um, and, and I use the word tolerated on purpose because I do. I get up every morning and I shrug my shoulders to being called the N-word. And I'm saying the N-word because I'm being respectful to your listeners. Ordinarily, I would yeah. use the full term. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, you know, I get up and I shout at me on the street or you know there's as I said there's other microaggressive ways that it's very much communicated to me that my color is recognized that my color is not appreciated and that in certain ways I should not be where I am because of the color of my skin and this is 2020 so I want to just get it out there to um, your listeners but I'm really appreciative um, that um, that we are seeing this discussion happening and that I really do hope and pray that this discussion doesn't get lost in two weeks' time or a month's time or a year's time. Because when, when I talk about all lives matter, coming back to that point, this really yeah. is actually about all lives matter. Because let me tell you something, if all lives didn't matter, then we wouldn't have seen the atrocities committed against the Jews back in the Second World War. We wouldn't have seen the continuation of sla the slavery of women, of the slavery of, of even the, the white slave trade. We wouldn't see that continuing in the way that we do now. In London alone, 
we have women and children who are enslaved um, and they are, um, you know, uh, you know, held against their will. This is happening all around the world. So this really is about all lives mattering. And the fact that the George Floyd incident, incident was horrifying in itself, we really need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and we really need to start challenging ourselves about what it means to be a human being, be it black, white, Chinese. Well, I wonder if... Uh people listening maybe who have children and who are sitting there thinking i have to protect my children from this i you know this is a, a an actually a bit of a stain upon our society and i don't want them to grow up uh i don't want them to grow up if they are black thinking that this is an inevitable consequence of their life and i don't want them to grow up if they're white thinking oh maybe these are things that i should take on board and maybe i should be a bit racist so i'm just i'm going to say nothing to my kids so they just don't know how do you think we should be talking to our children about what is happening at the moment? Well, let me tell you, children understand differences. From the, from the time that they go into nursery and that they're taught to describe themselves and to draw a picture, the picture of themselves. You know, I can remember going to school and being asked to draw a picture of myself um, and finding the brown pencil um, and my white uh, friends not being able to find a pink pencil. So, so <laughs> you know, so I know, I, you know, don't think you cannot talk about differences to your child because they see them from a very young age. And you need to feel confident to talk about those differences to children because racism isn't innate. Racism is taught. So, you know, you are either going to be a a, uh, a person in your child's life who encourages your child to understand the differences and to celebrate the differences and to accept the differences, or you are going to be the adult in your child's life where you do your best to differentiate and, and identify those differences and to suggest that those differences make one person superior to the other. That was lawyer Paula Roan Adrian talking about the Black Lives Matter and how we talk about racism with our children. Um, I don't know about you, but I just never had that discussion growing up. It wasn't part of my white middle class upbringing. And I think it's in a way amazing that we are talking about it now. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Joining us now to talk about the domestic abuse, Phil, Laura Farris, MP, Conservative MP for Newbury and member of the Home Affairs Select Committee. Hi, Laura, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. So the domestic abuse bill finally going through Parliament. It got held up because of coronavirus, but we're finally on the way. For anyone who doesn't know what's in it, doesn't really understand it, what's the overall aim of the bill? Well, the overall aim of the bill is to, for the first time, kind of give domestic abuse a statutory definition to define it in law and also to take into account um, all the things it's capable of being. So it includes coercive control where um, yeah, sort of expressions that have only quite recently entered our language, like gaslighting, are recognised and also economic control, because one of the features that is a reality of domestic abuse is that often it's not necessarily kind of you know, punches in the face, but it may be that um, the perpetrator controls the other party because they really restrict how they can spend money or how they can live and their freedoms. So it, it tries to take into account domestic abuse in all its forms and create a remedy for the victim. Hmm. 
Um, just on the economic abuse there, um, yeah. one of your colleagues, Philip Davis MP, has suggested that uh, we should be removing economic abuse from the definition of domestic abuse. He's gone through making amendments to the bill and one of them is to remove economic abuse. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I don't. I mean, I, I haven't spoken to Philip Davis about that. I don't think that is going to be removed, to be completely honest. Um, and I think it's a really important part of the bill. When we're talking about economic abuse, can yeah. you describe what it actually is for people? Well, I mean, there are sort of some compelling case studies that have been brought before Parliament, and they're just, you know, obviously they're just illustrations, but examples where the man. It is typically the man, and I want to sort of say that because often my constituents say, well, I know examples where it's the other way around, but in 90% of domestic abuse cases, it is a man to a woman. The man is a breadwinner and she's not, or she's a much less significant breadwinner. And over time, the household budget is controlled. I mean, there have even been, you know, examples that we've been made aware of in Parliament where um, there's been CCTV, um, you know, if the woman spends more than, you know, £5 a day, um, there's a sanction for her that's administered in the home and it's deeply humiliating, not something she would ever wish to reveal to friends or family. It's incredibly degrading the, the amount of money that she's allowed to use. You know, she's treated like a, a child and you often see that conduct increases over time and it's normally in conjunction with other aspects of domestic abuse, but it is an element of it. Can you tell us about some of the other, maybe more kind of controversial or less known parts of the bill? One thing that I know you've been talking to Boris Johnson about is the rough sex defence. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the rough sex defence is actually, it's it, it presented in the bill as a sequence of amendments that are jointly um, proposed by me, Harriet Harman and Mark Garnier, who's another Conservative MP. And they come out of um, a really ugly strain of cases that have been heard in courts in the last sort of particularly five years, although they do go a bit but before that. And there's two things about that. First of all, is you get these really horrific cases, typically where the victim has died and died in a sexual context, and the man asserts in court that they were having sex, but that's how they had sex, it's violent, and she consented to that. And the reason she's died is because she consented, or even in some, some one very recent case, the Natalie Connolly case, that she instigated and urged him to do more. And, of course, she's not there to say what happened on the night. Mm. And in that particular case, the man who had killed her in the most sort of extreme, violent death ended up getting 30 months or something in prison. He's about to be released. And that was, I think, two years ago, the sentencing remarks were handed down. And so we feel that... That, that consent cannot be, you, the, the rough sex um, defence cannot be, we don't want it to be advanced anymore um, in these sorts of cases. And then the other element, which is something that's really worrying, is this increase in strangulation, particularly, you know, young people are reporting it, where they didn't sort of, women, so they didn't, they neither knew nor anticipated nor consented to the man strangling them during sex, but it just happened. And it seems to be happening with increasing frequency, sometimes causing very serious injury afterwards. And again, that becoming a feature. And that, another one of our amendments deals with that. Why do you think we are still in 2020 only just at the point where we're starting to properly legislate for domestic abuse, for coercive control, for economic abuse, for rough sex? Why is... Why has it taken us so long to get here? 
that's a really good question, actually. Um, I think, you know, I think I think for a long time, domestic abuse, and this isn't a criticism of the police, I think it was a cultural reaction, but I think, domestic, you know, a domestic was seen as a low-level incidence of crime, um, something that the police typically didn't want to get involved in, particularly, you know, it was a kind of his and hers, behind closed doors, not their business. And it's taken a long time, I think, for women's groups really to articulate articulate how damaging it can be. And also for people who are children in those, context, in those contexts who've grown up. I mean, one of the most powerful speeches in the domestic abuse debate that we had a few weeks ago in Parliament was a new Conservative MP who had been a victim of hideous domestic abuse at the hands of his stepfather when he was about nine, sort of nine to 11. And his mm. testimony was absolutely shocking. And, it, and it's sort of those sorts of voices hey, describing the effect it's had, I think, I mean, one of the things about the rough sex defence, you know, Harriet Harman often refers to something that used to be an accept- acceptable defence 30 years ago, which is called the nagging and shagging defence, where the defendant would pre- present to a jury, you know, his wife was just always nagging him or she'd been unfaithful to him. And sometimes they'd get off a murder charge because the jury in the old days used to agree, oh, she sounds, you know, very difficult. Um, so there's a cultural element to it, actually, the fact that we're willing to delve into other people's private lives, but also, I suppose, a sense that there's a great, you know, a greater recognition of wrongs that can happen in in hidden places. Do you think the Conservative Party is aligned on this domestic abuse bill? I just, I say this not to raise his name again, but um, Philip Davis has been through the bill with his red pen by the looks of things, saying, you know, things like, uh, what does he say? We shouldn't, um, we can't have two victims of abuse. So if you're a child who witnesses domestic abuse, you're not a victim of it. Um, that if you're a local authority and you've given housing to somebody who's claimed domestic abuse and it turns out that their information is incorrect or false, they should be booted out. As a party, do you all stand behind this bill? Well, I mean, all I can say is it, it is a piece of conservative, you know, it is a conservative bill. Um, it's a conservative government that's prepared it, that's drafted it, that's put it into practice. My impression is that the, you know, you're, you're giving me an example, and I think it might be fair to say that that is um, a minority view. In fact, not one I actually had been familiar with before. I think that the that, that the Conservative Party is really committed to this bill. Um, I mean, the Conservative Party is a party that's led by a man who had the police called on him for a potential domestic uh, oh. incident, isn't it? But that was, a, I mean, that was, I think, I think in fairness, that was a non-incident. There were no charges pressed. Mm. That wasn't pursued. And, and he, you know, he's engaged to his partner. They've had a baby and they're very happy together. And I think there was, you know, there was a bit of, there was a, quite a lot of um, suggestion that that may have been a sort of hostile neighbour who was seeking to cause trouble. And I'm not going to really comment on that. But the mm. Prime Minister has been very supportive of this bill. In fact, he's been one of the people who's been pressing for it to, to make its move through Parliament, despite the coronavirus. And it's now, you know, very much at an advanced stage in the legislative process. So, and I think on the on the element of sort of, if somebody, you just gave me the Philip Davis example, which I wasn't familiar with, but if obviously if somebody was using a falsehood to get a home and they hadn't been a victim of, of domestic abuse, then it doesn't suggest to me that that requires some particular carve-out. I mean, that would be an obvious case of fraud. Um, mm. But you know, um, you know, you can't use a false pretense to get something. But 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 all we've seen through the but, but it is quite normal for victims of abuse to give inaccurate information, isn't it? Well, I don't think it would be quite as fundamental as saying you were a domestic a victim of domestic abuse and you weren't. And it's true that again, it's the Conservative government that has said they will get priority on the housing list, but if they are a victim, yeah. Um, Laura, what 
what difference do you think this bill will make to the lives? And, you know, let's be honest here. We, as you said, we talk about domestic abuse. It does happen to men and women. It's not, yeah. uh, it's not particular to women, but it is for the vast majority of it. The vast majority of it is abuse against women. Um, what difference do you think this bill will make to the lives of women? I'm really, I, mean, I think it is a really important point to note because we had the Domestic Abuse Commissioner give evidence to the Home Affairs Committee and we were asking her about the gender split and she was absolutely clear that, you know, it was 90% minimum really of the victims were women. So um, I think that over time it will be an absolutely transformative piece of social reform because it will, it will it, first of all, by identifying things like coercive control and economic control of a crime, which haven't necessarily even been expressed before, it will allow women to recognise when those things are happening to them that you know something that is not just bad, but something they, they have a right to get a remedy to, to enforce, to go to court over. Um, and I think it will be you know as significant as maybe the Sex Discrimination Act in 1975, or even the Equal Pay Act. Actually, I, I think it's one of the sort of big pieces of social reform of the last 20 years, potentially. Fantastic. Well, good luck with it. I hope it gets passed through. Uh, well, Laura with, Paris. with our amendments, of course. <laughs> <laughs> with all the best amendments, not all of them. Some of them, some of them can stay, um, with all the amendments. Um, Laura Farris, thank you so much. Conservative MP for Newbury and member of the Home Affairs Select Committee there, telling us all about the domestic abuse bill. Um, due to be heard on the 25th of June, we'll let you know what happens with it. It's been a long time coming, so here at Badass Women's Hour, we sincerely hope it goes through. Thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. We will be back after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. We are talking about Alzheimer's. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I personally just the thought of it really strikes fear into my heart not knowing who i am where i am who my family are not having my memories my understanding of the world 
I find it absolutely terrifying. And new research from one woman shows that potentially there could be a gender aspect to Alzheimer's, which we have ignored. Dr. Lisa Moscone says that possibly menopause is linked to Alzheimer's and it's to do with our estrogen. She's here to tell us about that now. Hi, Lisa. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so to start us off, tell us why you think the menopause could be linked to Alzheimer's. Right. Uh, also, it's not just I think that menopause might be related to Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. We actually have research that shows that. So I, I'm a brain scientist. I'm a neuroscientist and I've been looking at brains for 20 years and I've been looking at Alzheimer's disease for just as long because mm -hmm. I have a family history of Alzheimer's. And like you said, I am terrified of getting Alzheimer's myself. So we're looking at women's brains in particular because out of every three patients with Alzheimer's, two are women. And we have shown using brain scans here that women is not just the women live longer, which is the pushback I usually get, but the point is that women develop Alzheimer's brain changes earlier than men, and specifically as we go through menopause. And of course, this is not all women, right? Just some women. Okay. That's what the link, is it about, basically. Mm -hmm. What is it about the menopause that seems to impact, I guess, our brains and how they work? Right. So I think something that is really important to share with all women is that their hormones, or sex hormones, like you meant, you said estrogen before, we say estrogen, but <laughs> um, <laughs> estrogen is not just involved in reproduction and having kids, but it's also mm -hmm. really, really important for brain health. So the more estrogen you have in your body, the more estrogen you have in your brain. And estrogen is a really neuroprotective hormone. So when we lose this hormone, we don't just lose it in our ovaries, we also lose it in our brains. And their brains literally slow down and can start aging faster, which is a risk factor right. for Alzheimer's disease. So menopause, I really want all women to, to know this, that menopause does start in your brain. A lot of women come to me saying, I'm having half flashes, night sweats, brain fog, depression, insomnia, anxiety. These symptoms don't start in your ovaries. They start in your brain. So we really need to acknowledge this because so many women are worried that they're going crazy during menopause, that they're losing their minds, whereas this is just a, a natural transition. Is this something that we could either stop or slow with hormone replacement therapy? That's a really good question. And the answer for now is that hormonal replacement therapy can be very effective to address many of the symptoms of menopause, especially heart flashes. We don't yet know if it can actually be used to prevent Alzheimer's disease and dementia. We're looking into that right now. So many people are looking into that. So hopefully within the next few years, we'll have a strong answer to that. Makes sense to me but we really need to prove <laughs> it and test it. <laughs> yeah. What do you think we can do now to protect ourselves or possibly to counteract some of the impact from the menopause? There are so many things that women can do today to really protect their hormones and their hormones effects on their brains that do not require taking medications, but really 
speak to our lifestyle. We really need to take a good look at our lifestyle because the, there are so many medical conditions that can really accelerate menopause and make it worse that we can manage medically and therapeutically like obesity and diabetes and insulin resistance and thyroid disease and hormonal imbalances. And then there are many things that really relate to diet and exercise mm. and stress. Everybody's stressed out right now, right? Yeah. But something we don't talk about enough is that stress literally steals your estrogens. The more stressed out you are, the fewer estrogens your body is going to be able to make. That's fascinating. So when we're stressed, we're actually almost diverting our body's attention from making estrogen to making stress hormones. Yeah, exactly. They, work, they really go hand in hand. They work in balance. So cortisol is the main stress mm -hmm. hormone and the body needs to make it using a molecule. It's called pregnenolone, just, you know, fancy name. But it steals this molecule away from your estrogens. So when your cortisol goes up, your estrogens go down. And it's really important to reduce stress, not just because stress is, is an actual serious problem, but also because your body needs to be able to make the estrogens that you need. So, so easier said well, than done, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For us to say, well, just be less stressed. It'll be better. It, are there sort of practical things we can do? I'm thinking, is it, you know, because sometimes it's easier to put stuff into our lives than take stuff out. So if we can't remove stress, are there things we can do to kind of balance it out? Yeah. So what you can put into your life is meditation, for example, mm -hmm. is more sleep, is more physical activity, more exercise, is more green time instead of screen time. Again, easier said than done right now, right? <laughs> We're still in lockdown, so there's that too. Um, there, there are, there's yoga. You can put yoga into your life. Right. There are so many things that one can do to just really manage stress. And it's very personal, I think, what really works for you. But as a scientist, I'm relieved to say that meditation actually seems to really work. I was very skeptical. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I have a really strong like biology background. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, meditation. <laughs> but, <laughs> there's now really strong science showing that meditation, even having a consistent meditation practice, even just 12 minutes a day, can really improve blood flow to the brain, reduce, reduce cortisol levels, improve oxytocin, and um, really improve memory function in women, even those who are really stressed out, like caregivers or patients with dementia, for example. And these are clinical trials that are published in very serious journals. And I talk about this a lot in my, in my book, The XX Brain, which is out yesterday in the UK <laughs> and they describe exactly how this little practice works, like exactly what kind of chanting you're doing for how long and what kind of tools you can use to support yourself in being consistent. Because it's hard being consistent, right? I think that's the absolutely. challenge for a lot of you. Right? Do you meditate? <laughs> I do, but absolutely not consistently. So <laughs> as you were saying, it's just 12 minutes right. a day. I was like, oh dear. <laughs> Right. Um, Lisa, right. well, one of the things that I was really interested to read in your biography is, as you said earlier, you touched on it earlier, this is really personal for you, isn't it? It's very, very personal. My, I have a strong family history of Alzheimer's disease that really affects the women 
in my family. Mm. My grandmother was one of four siblings, three sisters and one brother. And all three sisters developed Alzheimer's disease and died of it, whereas the brother did not and was spared. So at first, for me, it was wow. like, oh, my God, what do I do for me? But yeah. then I thought, well, is it just my family or is it more like everyone? And it turns out just 10 years ago, it was actually proven that Alzheimer's affects more women than men. So there's a two to one ratio really for every three Alzheimer's patients wow. to a woman, which means that for every man suffering from Alzheimer's, there are two women. Which do we great. talk about that enough like within the medical no. community? Is that addressed <laughs> and understood? Oh my God, no, no, not at all, not at all. We we have known that I, again. I've been doing this for twenty years. I started yeah. as soon as I went to college, but at first nobody knew that. We found out in twenty ten. It became an actual medical reality, and still today, very few scientists look at men and women separately. We always kind of lump them together and then remove the effects of gender using statistical uh, tests. Whereas what I've been doing forever really is to look at women as being different from men and having different brains and different risks and different strengths, of course. But in this case, we want to address our risks. And it's very hard to do that. You need twice the amount of patients, twice the amount of money, yeah. twice the amount of time. So it's you really have to commit to that. For women listening to this, as you said, when we go through the menopause, we do get brain fog. You know, we do start to forget things. We go up, up the stairs to the room and forget why we came there and back down again and forget what we went down <laughs> for. You know, how do we start to see the difference between a normal level of brain fog and something we should be concerned about? It's a really good question. And, and it's, it's something that a lot of uh, my patient asks also is related to pregnancy. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of women notice similar um, symptoms during pregnancy, but more so after pregnancy, right? We're now talking about postpartum depression as something that is real and that at some point goes away. And for many women, the symptoms of menopause at some point either go away or plateau right, they stabilize and you, you live with them, very often they go away. For some women, they do not. And for some of these women whose symptoms just progress and continue, that's also a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease later on. So mm -hmm. my recommendation is to really talk to your doctor, find a doctor who is knowledgeable, not just about your ovaries, but also about your brain as much as possible, ask questions, Right? We need to make sure yeah. that doctors really are aware of this progress in research. It always takes a lot of time, honestly, from the research to clinical practice, it takes time. But the more women really demand information, like accurate information, the sooner we as doctors and scientists will be able to come up with solutions that actually work. So it's really important that patients, that women ask, and they make their doctors aware of their concerns. Amazing. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Lisa Moscone, author of The XX Brain, which is out now. If you are concerned about whether what you're experiencing is menopause or something more serious, uh, do go check it out. Also, she said some ways to counteract the inevitable. It's not inevitable. We can look after our brain health and our hormone health together. 
Thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. Now, let's get back to our guests. We're very lucky to be joined by Elizabeth Anionwu, former nurse, raised one pretty much the highest levels of the nursing profession during her career. Uh, she has championed black women in the nursing profession and medical profession and has just a wonderful, wonderful life story. So we're very excited to have her here. Hi, Elizabeth. Oh, hello, Harriet. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start, I want to talk to you about your career and your life and you've just got an amazing story, but I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about um, some of the things that are going on around the country at the moment, particularly the Black Lives Matter protests and the sort of the discussion about the protests and also COVID-19 and we know that it impacts uh, people from black and ethnic minority communities more harshly. Watching those protests today, how are you feeling about them? I, I'm actually finding it a very positive articulation of mm. people's desire in yeah. the black community to, to make their feelings known in a peaceful, mm. collaborative way. Yeah. And uh, I'm watch- I've been watching quite a lot of the coverage of the demonstrations on television. I'm, I'm in my early 70s now. I'm self-isolating still. And uh, it's, it's given me a lot of pride to watch the, the, the varied age range and yeah. people from all, all, all backgrounds as well, all ethnic backgrounds uh, as well. Lovely. And the report that was finally published this week, looking at um, the impact of COVID-19 on those from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, how did you feel about that when you read it, and particularly given what we know about the numbers of medical professionals who have died because of coronavirus and the link between ethnicity and their death? Um, well, first of all, it wasn't the full report as we were all expecting. For example, Professor Kevin Fenton, who I admire greatly, uh, did an, a, a very in-depth consultation with stakeholders and others. And also, there's, there's no recommendations so that that has actually caused quite a lot of anger, because yeah. as somebody uh, commented, what is in the report is is well known. There's nothing new. Mm-hmm. In a sense, it's yeah. good for the re- those that information to be more widely known through its publication. So um, it, you see, I think all of this it, it's it's just not the right way to do things. It's stirring up more resentment in a very bruised section of the community already which I think is, is extremely sad and a little bit dangerous as well in terms of we want resolution of issues not exacerbation you know I think you make an excellent point which is if people are just highlighting problems but they're not then interested in actually also suggesting solutions or if they're not then publishing suggested solutions it feels like a, a section of the community is possibly just being pushed aside they're not feeling respected. They're not feeling valued. Mm. These are very, yeah. very serious issues about people's health. People have died. People have been extremely ill. 
and people genuinely want to work with institutions and politicians, whoever, to, to redress these issues. I wonder if you have perhaps seen something sort of similar to this in your career previously, because I know you became the UK's first sickle cell nurse specialist, and we've had guests on the show before talking about the problems of actually getting research done into sickle cell disease, into uh, having it taken seriously, into actually the kind of publicity and awareness around it. Did you discover that or feel that when you were working in the area as well? Yes, I think there are some incredible parallels with mm. the um, overrepresentation of black and minority ethnic population impacted seriously uh, with COVID-19, uh, as we've said, both with being seriously ill and also sadly dying of the condition. And uh, the issue with sickle cell, particularly in the 1970s, when it, it was clear that sickle cell um, anemia was a significant public health issue for mainly, but not solely, the black community. And yet there were no policies in place within the Department of Health and National Health Service, and therefore it was felt it was being ignored. And it's a very serious illness. Yeah. People wanted more information about it, both for health professionals and in the community itself. They wanted better management. They wanted more research. And um, it, it took a long time before that, that came into place. I think it was in 2006 when routine screening of newborn babies was introduced. So, you know, you have to be really patient. And it's very difficult to be patient when it affects people's lives. Mm. How did you manage to be so patient when you were working in that area? Oh, I wasn't patient. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, no, no. Patient. People who know me know that I'm very patient. And, you know, it wasn't just me. I think yeah. what has always helped with its movements, it's like Black Lives Matter, it's a movement of people coming together. And that was very much the situation for sickle cell. And in fact, it was those affected by the condition, their relatives, but also uh, health professionals. Certain health professionals really rallied around and there were other people involved as well. Um, let's kind of go back a bit because I've, I've sort of jumped us in the end. But um, tell us a little bit about your career because I'm just going to read what I've got on my notes, which is pretty amazing, really. Uh, so UK's first sickle cell nurse specialist, uh, professor of nursing, created the Mary Seacole Centre for Nursing Practice. You hold a PhD. Uh, you are a fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. You've also published your own memoir. When you started out as a nurse, did you know that you were going to go as far in your career as you did? No, I certainly didn't. Thank you for mentioning your memoirs because I think the title might give you some insight into mm. has propelled me. Where's the energy? Where's the drive come from? And I called, I called my memoirs Mixed Blessings from a Cambridge Union. I was the outcome of an affair of two university students, obviously at Cambridge University, just, after, just at the end of the Second World War. I was born in 1947. And um, I think, uh, particularly having read 
President Obama's Dreams from My Father, his, his memoirs, yeah. he talks about his gradual realisation. Well, in fact, he had it pointed out to him that he must be very, you know, what's a middle-class guy like him getting, wanting to be a community activist in, in Chicago? And the, the guy that was asking him this was saying, I, th I think you must be quite an angry, you must have a lot of anger. And uh, President, he wasn't President then, but, you know, President Obama, yeah. he, 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 he sort of thought about this and thought, well, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. And that was a light bulb moment for me when I read that book. And it, it helped me recognise that I had deep-seated anger just from the situation that, that I was born into, if you like, the situation for my mother. Yeah. And um, when I, I became a health visitor, because I, I had been a nurse, but I didn't like working in hospitals where, not all hospitals, but particular hospitals, where there were rules and regulations that didn't make sense. And I wanted to work, if you like, a bit more independently, but also working in people's homes because, you know, you're not, you're not, yeah. you don't have that power base in people's homes, quite rightly. And I felt that that would suit the sort of ideals that I had about healthcare. So can you tell us a little bit about your your parents and uh, she said you're the result of an affair between two Cambridge students but your mum was white and your dad was black that's right my, my mother was of white Irish heritage she, mm. a Catholic um, she was born in England and she met my father who so my sorry, my mother was studying classics at uh, uh, Newnham College in Cambridge University and my father was a law student. He he was just completing his law degree at Cambridge University, and he went on to become a barrister. Now, uh, that they obviously had an affair, and I, my mother decided she could have gone back to university, but she decided that she wanted to try and provide a home for me. So she gave up what was considered that she would have a brilliant academic career an extremely bright um, person mm. and um, in order to try and make a home for me and it didn't quite work out it, you know I was a mixed race child um, I, I lived in I was in a children's home for the first nine years of my life my mother regularly visited me but in that you know in those days there weren't there wasn't the support system that you have today for yeah. single um, single parents and so it took a long time for her to um, take me out of the convent, uh, children's home, into her home. But unfortunately, that didn't work out because my stepfather was fine for the first few months. I, I only stayed there for 20 months because he started to physically abuse me and, you know, quite violently towards the end. And one of the reasons I discovered later was that he was being teased by his mates down at the pub what's he having, and they used to use this term, what's, what's he doing having a, a half-caste child in his house? This was in the Midlands in the mid-1950s, yeah. and he couldn't cope with it and took it out on me when my mother wasn't around. So uh, my grandparents rescued me, but, you know, I had definitely a, a difficult childhood. However, helped by some real, very kind people, people who cared for me. And that includes my mother, by the way, because I always knew... She really wanted to do the best for me. And then also my grandparents and, and the aunt also. Yeah. When you... Because you talk about that period of your life, which is 
you know, it's traumatic for a young child. You're in a children's home, your mother's trying to look after you, but she isn't settled, and then your stepfather is, beats you, and then you're, you go to live with your grandma. It's, it's very up and down for any child, but you talk about it with an immense ability to kind of understand, well, understand, A, what all of those people were going through in that situation, and also to see the impact that it had on you. Is that something you came to later on in life, or could you see it when you were going through it? I think what helped me all the way through in childhood and early adulthood is that, that there always seemed to be somebody who saw something in me. It could have been a nun, um, a teacher. Um, it, it, I, I, there's always somebody who's been very kind towards me, and that has really helped. And I, 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 I'm very observant. There's no doubt about it. I, 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 I read a lot from child. I still read, but um, I mean, look, I think I inherited some genes from my mother and father. <laughs> Come on, let's let's put that yeah. out there. <laughs> I think that that really helped that I was an intelligent child. But I also had a great sense of humour, and I could link in with people who just saw something in me and would protect me. I mean, I remember when I was w with with my grandparents, my grandfather died um, after about 20 months. My grandmother um, and my aunt looked after me. But when I was 16, my grandmother sent me back to stay with my mother and my stepfather. And when I heard that I was going to leave, uh, yeah. leave my friends and everybody, two teachers came to the house, you know, to talk to, to my grandmother try and plead with her for me to stay so that the, and my aunt well, she was on honeymoon when my grandmother took the decision she was horrified later when she discovered what had happened so i think that there, there i've got an ability looking this is only looking back to be quite honest harriet mm. there's been an ability for me to make connections with people to be liked by certain people yeah. not necessarily everybody but on the whole, I get on with people, and who, who literally I use the term rescue because that has helped yeah. me through a lot of these difficult times. You know. When did you decide that you wanted to become a nurse? As a, a very small child, when I was in the children's home, I think I must have been about four or five, and I had very bad eczema. So the the, 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 the children's home was run by Catholic nuns in Birmingham. I used to, there would be one nun uh, who was the nurse, I think. She had a white habit, and she would um, change my dressings for me. And it was very painful um, if, if other people did it, because in those days they used to put um, coal tar paste on, mm. on your very dry, itchy, mm. painful, very cooling, really lovely. And they'd put a bandage over it. But when it came to changing the dressing, the coal tar paste now had was dry and stuck to the bandage, and if if it was if the bandage was taken off too quickly, it'd be very painful and it would cause my skin to bleed. Now this particular nun, I called her the white nun. Well, they were all white, but she had a white habit rather than a black habit. She used to use distraction therapy. <clears throat> so, for example, she would use words that, as a small child in a very Catholic environment. I thought were very rude, words like bottom, you know, and I would be stunned and laugh. Mm -hmm. And, of course, 
as I was laughing, she would take the bandage off very quickly. And I realised that when she changed my dressings, it never hurt. And then later on, I discovered she was something called a nurse. And I mean, I really loved this nun. And I thought, I wasn't going to be a nun. I thought, I'd love to be a nurse. <laughs> yeah. Good pick. Yeah. <laughs> In your nursing career, did you ever experience uh, prejudice or racism? Yeah. Or has it changed, uh, do you think? Um, I, I'll tell you the first experience I I, I mm. racism linked with my nursing career. So I was 16 or 17 when I, I was living in the Midlands and I was applying to... I wanted to come to London to, to train as a nurse. And I applied to three or four teaching hospitals recommended by the school medical officer because I worked as a school nurse assistant then. And all these application forms at that time asked you who your father was, what his name was. Well, I didn't know who my mm. father was. And, and I had my mother's maiden name. So I had to leave those sections blank. And also they asked for a photograph of yourself. Now, all I know mm. is this, the shock of the school medical officer as well. I never got any reply from any of the... And I had seven O-levels. I mean, you know, I had yeah. good examples. He had given me a reference. He could, he could not understand why I wasn't getting any reply. And so he then suggested a hospital that he had worked in in London himself. And I got mm. it. It wasn't a teaching hospital. I got into that hospital. So it makes... I've got no ever, you know, you don't know, but you think, well, why? Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm I'm being a bit he big-headed now, but when you, when I look ahead and see what stellar nursing career I was to have, I'm thinking, hold on, <laughs> why didn't those hospitals, why didn't they show any interest in my application form? It does so seeds of doubt in your mind. But I've had more um, explicit examples of racism, you know, the odd patient who doesn't want, you to nurse them, take your brown hands off me. When I was a health yeah. visitor student, the actual manager um, threatened to fail me, even though I had passed my theoretical exams with a high grade. And the reason she wanted to fail me was I questioned some racist issue in, in practice. And she said, you haven't got the right attitude. You know, you're not, you're not the right sort of person that should come into health visiting. And it took the school medical office of health, a different one, by the way, and other people to intervene to say, no, this is unfair. And it had to be reviewed by the college. And they said, oh, yeah, she should pass. So, you know, I've experienced those sort of incidents throughout my, throughout my career. So, yeah. And in a way, I, I, it's not that I took it for granted, but it didn't surprise me. But fortunately, yeah. I was quite political in my with a small p. I always had connections mm. with people uh, who would come and um, argue on my behalf because you never do anything on your own. I've been a member of trade unions, for example, you know, and I always give advice to people: make sure you are a member of a trade union or a professional association because you never know when you need support. Yeah. It's really interesting that because I wonder what other advice you would give to young people, particularly young black people now, who 
really want to make their way in the world, who want to be as successful as, in their careers as you've been in yours, and are bumping up against, you know, I mean, nowadays, not even so much overt racism, that's you know, one thing, but actually a, a level of kind of hidden racism. How do they deal with that? So I often have these discussions with student nurses or qualified nurses mm. and midwives and say, first of all, be the very best you can. You, you, you've, you've, you've got to study. You, you've got to be better than others, and, you know, okay. in, a, in a way. But make sure you are expert at what you are practicing and also have a a sort of network to support you because it's really can be really tough. You can get quite depressed and you have to know your mental health and know your physical health and look after yourself so that I mean, this applies to everybody really, but then you have this added factor of racism and um, be very, be aware, you know, read up about the history of racism and look at the incredible examples, whether it's Martin Luther King President Obama. I mean, I, I, I do read a lot, and I found a lot of succor and source of comfort and advice and guidance mm. from reading about people's lives and how they overcame issues. And then um, also, as I said, flagged up, make sure you've got some sort of support when things go wrong so you're not battling on your own. And then generally, you know, I, 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 I do find my sense of humour helps, believe it or not, because sometimes <laughs> you can see the silliness in situations that, you know, yeah. and, and then also have the courage to point it out to people, whether they like it or not, and um, actually point out the unfair treatment that I'm a recipient of compared to somebody else who's done exactly the same thing or is in exactly the same situation and you haven't called them out, or you're just not giving me the opportunities that you've given somebody else. Why is that? And sometimes it works. Sometimes you get into trouble. Often people are quite taken aback that you're calling them out. You've got the confidence to call people out um, and say sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I've, I've got this inner confidence. It gradually grew. It wasn't there initially. It gradually grew, and I don't like injustice, and I'm prepared to call it out. Well, on behalf of everyone who has worked with you and come after you, thank you very much for doing so. Um, Elizabeth, it's been so inspiring and lovely talking to you. You have such an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it with us here on Badass Women's Hour. Uh, that is Elizabeth Annie Onwu talking about her career in nursing there. Just a really fantastic way, I think, for us to end the show, particularly this weekend when we've talked so much about the Black Lives Matter protests. And as I said at the start, when we started Badass Women's Hour, we did it so that we could have different conversations on the radio, so that we could have people that you don't usually hear, so that we could bring diverse voices onto the radio. And I'm really proud that we have done that and that we continue to do that. Um, it is important that we both love and trust our news organisations, but also that we hold them to account and we question them and that we ask them to fully represent our society. Because when we don't, we not only do ourselves a disservice, but we do all the people around us a disservice as well. So I hope this week, go follow the hashtag Black Lives Matter 
educate yourself and we'll see you here again same time same place next week you've been listening to badass women's hour if you like the show then help more people find us you can tag us or talk to us on social media using at badass women's hour or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating five stars please it helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us we'll be back next week with more badass guests and in-depth chat planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.